wellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to A Quirky Journey, the healthy family podcast with your hosts, Joe Witten and Fuad Kassab. Welcome back, guys, to A Quirky Journey. This is your host, Fuad Kassab, and with me from her car somewhere near <laughs> the Tablelands in far north Queensland is Joe Witten. Hi, Jojo. Hello, Fufu. Never yeah, before has this technology yeah. been able to allow us, you know, like to to record from such weird places. I know. I think the last intro was from a car. Was it? I seem to be in Jo's the a hobo. She's on the road. <laughs> Life of a mum. <laughs> <laughs> no, Always no. running kids around. You sort of feel like you live in a car. I think maybe I just need one of those camper vans, so wherever I've got like <laughs> bed. <laughs> yeah. That's not a bad idea. I'd I love one of those a, actually. Little combi van with a bed and a little kitchen sink. <sighs> That'd be cool, hey? I want to get one of those. All right, I'll buy you one for Christmas and you can buy me yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. That's <laughs> good. Uh, Jojo, a couple yeah. of things. One is we're going to Tasmania, finally. Ah, I'm so excited. Come on, man. Are you really excited? I am. I love Tasmania. It's a good place, isn't it? Besides the fact that I just love going and doing our seminars because we have so much oh. fun. <laughs> Well, that's it. We've got three seminars. We've got Bernie on the 28th of August, Launceston on the 29th of August, and Hobart on the 30th of August. So three days in a row. Bang, bang, bang. And um, Joe leaves, I think. Are you leaving the day after? Which day? The, the uh, afternoon of the 31st, yeah. Ah, so right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so that you leave on a Friday. I'm probably leaving on the Sunday. No, no. No, no. I think we have... <laughs> Hang on, doesn't our seminars go until Friday, so I can't leave on a Friday. No, ours is on a Thursday. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Oh, you're right. Yes, thank you. I'm leaving on a Friday afternoon. Sorry, I got Um, my day. Yes, that's all right. Glad we worked it out in public in front of the entire... Listener base. I'm not sitting at my computer. I can't check my calendar. That's right. I'm looking at him here, and that's I, yeah, that's why I'm good. Because you know me, I'm terrible with dates. You are. Yeah. So <laughs> um, yeah, it's gonna be great. So please, guys, if you would like to come and see us and support us, we would love to see you. Head yeah. on to quirkycooking.com.au/events, or you can hit on the events link on Quirky Cooking and then you'll be able to see the dates and you can book from there. And uh, we'd love to see you there. We probably won't get around to going back to Tasmania for at least another year or plus. So um, if you want to see us, this is your chance. And um, on the other hand, we've got a nice uh, new product that we've added to the Quirky Cooking Shop recently, which is the Meadow and Marrow Bone Broth. Ah, what do you think of it? It's delicious. Isn't it? Yeah. I love the, that it's got herbs and, yeah. and pepper in there and stuff. It's very delicious. I like it. I like this. Um, okay, here's the deal with this stuff. So bone broth, it's best made at home. If you, make, if you get awesome organic or, or grass-fed bones and you make broth at home and you use your you know, local um, butcher or um, farmer, that's definitely the best. And it's definitely the cheapest because you can make a lot of bone broth for not much. And um, I try to do that and I quite often don't. Because <laughs> like, you know, like the rest of us. Because when you want it, you suddenly remember 
we were meant to start it a day ago. Yeah, for one thing, yeah. It's good to make it and freeze it in large batches. But, That's right. Um, but you'd run out. And then it's not one of those things which, is, which I'm always making. I used to when I was fully into the gaps thing. Mm. Now that I'm healed and I'm not doing gaps strictly anymore, my bone broth has sort of, you know, I don't, I make it maybe once a month now which is okay. not really as often as I want. And it's really good to have this jar of concentrate in the fridge. It's like, this is not like a dehydrated broth. So it's um, different. If you're uh, used to seeing that, that's the usual product on the market. This one is a concentrate. So it's, it's still just boiled down, but not dehydrated. It's still got the gelatin in it. It's got, you know, all these amino acids, which I don't know what happens to them when they dehydrate broth. Because when you use dehydrated broth, it's not gelatinous. I don't know where uh, those amino acids go. And those are the things that we need for our gut health. And mm. um, maybe they're there in some form in the dehydrated version, but just I don't know why it doesn't become jelly-like when you <laughs> use the dehydrated stuff and um, I'm sure this still has a lot of nutrients in it uh, but I'd, I'd love to see the um, the gelatin in there as well which is what you get with this product so head on to quirkycooking.com.au and then there's a shop link with foods underneath that and have a look it's a really good range you take a teaspoon out of it you put it in your put some hot water and it's got like we've got five different flavors i think one of them is just plain and the other ones have all sorts of different delicious herbs and spices and they're really Maybe really great curry flavor curry flavor is great yeah. yeah curry flavor there's also this stuff called am burn which like helps you like um you know just get your metabolism metabolism ramping in the morning and so mm -hmm. it, you know can replace your uh, morning coffee and it's cheaper, you know, it's a one third of the price, cup for cup. I think I could have the broth first, but mm, I'd still. And then your coffee. <laughs> yeah. They should do a broth and coffee version. Brothy. Yeah. Brothy. There you go, Fouad. You can do that one. I think I will. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if it's a meat stock and it's really bland, then you, you could mix the coffee in and you wouldn't know. Yes. I don't know. Do they cancel each other out? <laughs> yeah, well, mm, well in terms of what, how do they cancel each other out? See that? Oh, you know, when you're talking about things like adrenal fatigue. Oh, ah, yes. Well, the adrenal fatigue. Ah, yes, yes. That's different. I guess yes. you shouldn't really be having coffee in that case. No. I made Russian custard with 12 egg yolks. Um, I was thinking yesterday. of that. And uh, I added some coffee in there. <laughs> um, because I thought I'm going to turn it into ice cream. It would be delicious to make a coffee-flavored ice cream. And, you know, like If you've got adrenal fatigue, which I, I'm still recovering from from last year, um, much better than I was. Like I was uh, in oh, you're amazing world. now. Thank you. Oh, I exfoliated this morning. Oh, oh you mean like in general, I mean, like health-wise? Yes, yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so much uh, more energy, I mean. Oh, okay, okay, great. So, um, <laughs> 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 yes, Joe. Amazing in many ways, Fouad. <laughs> I, uh, there's so much to tell you about how amazing I am. Okay, uh, but continue on with the coffee ice cream. <laughs> yeah, so I, I was making this coffee ice cream, and um, and I was on the phone to Joe, and we started laughing because like the coffee depletes your <laughs> adrenals, and the egg yolks feed them. You know, so we're thinking. 12 egg yolks and a cup of coffee. I think 12 egg yolks and a cup of coffee still is beneficial for you. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Joe's like, how are you going to eat 12 egg yolks? 
an hour later, I'd eaten 12 egg yolks. Like it was nothing. And then he's like, I'm going to go jump in the cold pool and do my Wim Hof thing. And I'm just yeah. like, on a stomach full of 12 egg yolks, you crazy man. Well, they're so easy to digest, really. That's true. Body just goes through. And you, you were fine. So there you go. I spent six and a half minutes yesterday in 10 oh. degree water. Amazing. Today I spent 12 and a half minutes to 13, wow. yeah, 13 minutes. Yeah, You're going to be a new ice man soon. But I'll tell you what, today I, I couldn't shake off the cold after I got yeah. out. Yeah. Like I was cold to the, to the, to the marrow. <laughs> <laughs> Colder than the bone. My marrow oh, was beautiful. Wow. But I was thinking, you know what, like you preserve stuff by co- cooling it down. Maybe I'm going to live to be 150 if I keep yeah, doing it. probably have less wrinkles. Yeah, for sure. There you go. I'll, I'll have more goosebumps like you know like my skin just all gets all goosebumpy in the ice cold and i lose like i lost feeling of my body today i was like wow i'm just like pure consciousness at the moment i'm just a pair (laughs) of eyeballs looking out at the world and receiving inputs um it was quite pleasant um and then you know like slowly the warmth of the sun started coming in but it was fighting off the the 10 degree cold that i have come to and my body likes to be at 36 degrees being a homo sapien so then yeah like i just i thought it was just not gonna happen and then i got into the house and, and then the shiver reflex kicked in a little bit. Uh, oh man you know what like let's go have a, a, a warm shower and get dressed yeah. and stuff so i did that and i'm feeling excellent now as you can no. tell I don't, i'm not having to shut up yet you haven't what? Shut, Shut up. up. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Well, you know, you kind of have to talk on a podcast, so I'm glad you haven't shut up. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a boring podcast if we didn't talk. That's right. So, hey, Joe. Hey, Fuad. Hey. How you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Joe, tell me what's I'm happening with here you. in the sun. Uh, like, it's far north Queensland weather, and it's just beautiful and warm and sunny. Hmm. I don't know how I'm going to cope with Tasmania, but um, we're getting lots of uh, advice from people on Facebook of where to go for breakfast, lunches, dinners, snacks, um, what mm. to see and what to wear. Lots of thermals. <laughs> yeah, wow. Well, here's Hobart for you. 12 degrees at the moment. Oh. With, um, yeah, that's cold. Six degrees at its coolest. It's okay. going to be six to seven degrees all week. By the looks of it, mm, up wow. to upwards of 16. That's the most, that's the warmest it's going to be this week. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder where, what I'm doing. I don't know what the weather's like outside. I'm at 17 degrees. Oh yeah, that's all right. Okay, I can handle Hobart. That's no, no problem. But for you, you're, you're going to struggle. Yeah, at the yeah. moment here it's... Uh, 21. 21. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Poor thing. You should... Get more ice cold baths happening before you come down. I know. I was thinking that I'm going to have to jump in the cold, freezing shower a few more times to get used to the cool mm. weather. And uh, the wellness summits happening? Yes. So that's another thing that we're off to in Melbourne. So we're looking forward to seeing some of you there. And we still have our quirky group discount. So if you want to come and hang out with the quirkies at the summit, um, we've got. Um, Why would you? Why would you ever want to do that? Why would you not? Ah, okay. What's the code? I've oh. forgotten this. 
You keep talking. I'll find the code. <laughs> okay. So um, if you go to the Wellness Summit website, just look up Wellness, Wellness Summit. Oh, we've got the link on the show notes, but if you search Wellness Summit 2018, it will come up and you click on get tickets and then when you go in you put in the code and it will be $127 instead of 297 for the whole week. Yeah. So and that's a pretty good saving. The quirky group booking coupon code is actually quirky group booking. So quirky go. group booking all, so all one word. And you get uh, tickets that are $127 each. That's a bargain. I'd buy two tickets just because they're that cheap. Just and I wouldn't even bring go a friend twice. I'll like I'll go on my own. Oh, even go twice. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, like I'm saying, like I wouldn't be, bring a friend. It's so cheap. It's the wellness summit is an all day thing. Two days. Two, two days. Two days. Yeah, yeah, that's nothing, man. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, it's a great event. We loved it we, two years we ago. We have so much fun, don't we? Yeah, that was fantastic. I'm so, also looking at, uh, at doing in a dinner in September and yeah. another dinner in November. Yes. So the November di- dinner, we haven't, none of this has been sort of um, completely organized. Yeah, organized. But I'm looking at that same venue for the September dinner that we did the event in Gatumba mm-hmm. to have something local because it's such a beautiful area. I yeah. want to do something local to the mountains. And that might be uh, in on the sixth of the September. I've tentatively booked that room, um, but um, if you guys are in the area, please uh, come and have dinner with us. And, and if you're not in the area, then you should go visit because there's accommodation. <laughs> there is accommodation, and it's also like the whole area is beautiful. You can just get accommodation anywhere in the Blue Mountains this time of year. It's not like you know fully busy. And it's a really, really nice time of year as well. And um, mm. in a month's time, it's going to be even better. It's going to get warmer. And um, I'm, I still haven't decided on the theme of my dinner. Um, yeah, I don't want to do a repeat of all those uh, meals that I did at the restaurants. Uh, but, you know, maybe bring some of the highlights of that time. But maybe I'll do some some stuff that's sort of new and more relevant to You'll probably I'm get at now. You'll probably get a lot of old um, people who who used to come to the restaurant that just want um, some of their favourites. So yeah, just make- give me give me my slow yeah. cooked clam shoulder. <laughs> That's right. You can't not have the slow cooked clam shoulder. Anymore. Oh, you've got to have that. Yeah. So- I don't know. Maybe I'll smoke it this time. Ooh. See how that goes. Because I'm thinking it would be good to like implement some stuff that's local you know find some local oh, yeah. wood that i can smoke with some local uh bush tucker which i can use somehow i don't know find something um I, I also i'm thinking i'll talk to the local cooperative here and see if i can get all my veggies from them oh, i want to i want to try to source my veggies locally somehow i don't know if, if i can get all of them or whatever do. I don't know. Yeah, this is stuff that I all have to organize. And then I have to organize staff. I have to get, like, who's going to send the food out? Who's going to come cook with me? I don't. I no longer have staff. I've got to do all this stuff. I've, I'm, I'm panicking a little bit, but, like, I still want to do it. <laughs> Say yes and figure it out. After. That's what I'm feeling at the moment. It's like I'm, like, I'm feeling, like, in a, a panicky, happy, positive yes to this. <laughs> I'm like, ah, awesome. That's how I feel. <laughs> Oh, yeah. it'll be great. It'll be great. Are you going to come down? Are you going to fly? I would, fly down? I would love to. Can you? We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. 
Let's see. Okay. All right. Let's Check out, see how I go with all the stuff we've got on. All right. But I, I would love to. Okay, cool. Well, let's do it. Let's do a Sydney <laughs> event while you're here as well. All right. Then we get we get it sorted. If, if we do that, then then I have an extra reason to come down. Yeah. Not that need an extra reason. Yeah. <laughs> I'll come just for this local lamb. <laughs> well, isn't that right? You know, like yeah. fly down and I have some right now. My stomach's growling. Wow. Just, yeah, I haven't sure. had. All I had today was, let me think, what did I have? Oh, I had a little bit of um, the breakfast scramble from our cookbook mm. for breakfast. Yeah. And I had a cup of broth and that's all oh. I've had today. And it is wow. now 3.30 or so. Why, yeah. Joe? I'm just, I'm, this has been a crazy flat out day for me. <laughs> so I haven't been able to. I haven't had the time to eat properly yet. Well, That's- you should be eating all the colors of the rainbow and all sorts of stuff. Well, there was lots of veggies in my breakfast. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. You know, that maybe that brings us on to the topic of somehow of the top topic of the podcast currently. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Does it? Are, we, are you happy to move on now? Or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Some stuff? I don't want to bore uh, everyone to death without chit chat. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so... Dr. Jason Horolak, this guy's incredible. He is a probiotic researcher, he's an educator, and he's also a clinician. So the guy is one of like the most incredible, um, what's the word, Joe? Authorities on the microbiome. He knows so much about it. Like he actually can probably just, like they, they probably know him. He's that good. Like the guy, the bacteria. <laughs> oh, comes again. Huh? Here he comes again. Yeah, it's like, oh, like that's horror like. I've heard about this guy. You know, like <laughs> he's that famous. <laughs> <laughs> he's so and he knows his stuff. And um, you know, it's it's just um he's done sixteen textbook chapters, he's like a produced medical literature on this and his researcher research has been cited over 800 times so just an incredible guy with like a a brain that is really really made for this stuff and And how many years has he been researching the microbiome i think it's like 20 something uh, yes yeah before before most people had even heard what that word yeah about gut health or how it affects Back then, it used to be called the biome, and then they called it the microbiome. Really? No, no I'm just no. joking. <laughs> just making that was it sound like it was a long voice. time ago, you know? <laughs> Ye olde biome, it used to be called back then. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and now, um, but honestly, we really wanted to get someone who knows so much about this topic so that we can mm. get the best type of advice. And um, we got more than we expected with this mm. podcast, right, Jojo? Yeah, yeah. We learned heaps. So, um, look, we won't give it away, but all we're going to say is that you're going to love this podcast. Tune in, send it to your friends. This is an educational one that's not going to overwhelm you at the same time. You know, you're going to learn a lot, but it's not, you're not going to die from overwhelm. You're going to, it's really <laughs> assimilable. That's a word, isn't it? You can assimilate. Uh, what, um, assimilable yeah. as, as, I don't know how you say it I don't know how, which, emph- which word for, oh syllable to emphasize <laughs> but yeah 
that's that's the result of uh, 13 minutes in 10 degree water, guys. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to start making up words now. No, it's just coming back to me. My brain is, is just like my memory. I'm remembering a lot. Oh, my God. That's where I put that $50. I've got to go. All right, guys. Um, <laughs> chat to you later, Joe. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy the podcast, everyone. Dr. Jason Harlack, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Welcome, um, Jason. We, we heard about you through our assistant, Dan Sippel, who's a naturopath and a huge, huge fan of yours. And uh, ever since the day I met him, he kept telling me, have you heard of Dr. Harlack? Have you heard of Dr. Harlack? Like, oh, I have to hear about Dr. Harlack. And, uh, looking at your work, it's uh, really fantastic work that you're doing in the area of the microbiome. Now, this, is, uh, this has been a hot topic for uh, the past few years, and it's only going to get more and uh, more widespread the information that's coming out around the microbiome, even though we're really looking at it from the tip of the iceberg. And um, you, you've been dedicating uh, so many years of your life to this topic. Can you just give us a bit of background about your uh, professional relationship with the microbiome? Yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to, to, I suppose, discover the microbiome before it was properly <laughs> discovered by the broader community. So I've been doing research on the gut microbiota uh, and its role in human health since 2000. Essentially, when I finished my naturopathic training um, in 1999, I, I flew on to do my honors degree and then subsequently my, my PhD, um, looking at, at essentially the role of the gut microbiome in um, gut dysfunction, but particularly irritable bowel syndrome. So it, it gave me a wonderful opportunity to, to delve deep um, over a period of, you know, really between my PhD and my honors, looking at five or six years where most of my, since my full-time job was was looking and reading research studies. And at that point, there wasn't that many. So it was actually, you know, it was two or 300 published a year. So it was pretty easy to keep on, ta- on, on track. On top of all, all the research that had been done, looking at probiotics and prebiotics and looking at the fine nuances there, as, as well as broader impacts of diet on the microbiota. And for me, it's just been amazing to, to see the rise. You, you wouldn't have necessarily guessed at that juncture how, how big it was going to become. You know, like certainly it's always been uh, an area of interest for naturopaths and you can go back to the early 1900s and there's naturopaths talking about gut bacteria and how important it was back then. So I'd say for, for my, my profession, it's always been important and I could speak to naturopaths who were trained in the 1970s and 80s and they certainly were talking about gut bacteria mm. as part of their training back then too. Um, but we just didn't have the right tools at that point to actually properly see what was, was going on. And I think that's the, the change in technology that happened in the early 2000s is essentially what has led us to the boom in microbiome research and the connections we're now making between the human microbiota and you know, like every disease condition you can think of. It's all because of change in technology that occurred at that time point. Well, let, let us define the microbiome uh, for the rest of this show so that we are very, very clear on what we're talking about with the listeners. Yeah, yeah, because I suppose I, I will always, when I say microbiota or microbiome, I'm always speaking about the gut, but in fact, there are <laughs> other microbiomes too. You know, there's the skin microbiome, and there's nasal and oral cavity, 
breast milk and vagina. There's lots of different microbiomes. But for me, the, my main area of interest in research has always been the gastrointestinal tract microbiota. And, and, and with that, we're generally talking about but essentially the, the colon when we talk when we mention that the, the gut microbiota or, or gut microbiome most researchers and, and, and people who are discussing it are talking about the chronic microbiota and, and there we're looking at a you know if we're able to scoop out all those microbes and put them on a scale you'd be looking at you know one to two kilograms in weight um, mm. which makes it a similar size and weight as, as your liver um, and we know that now that the microbiome actually exceeds the liver in terms of the metabolic um, functions that it performs on our behalf, which wow. is pretty cool because our liver was considered to be a, by far our most important metabolically active organ. And that has shifted, you know, and, and certainly led to, to this idea of the microbiota being a pivotal, important human organ really taking hold. Whereas back in the early 2000s, it was a bit of a far out idea that these mm. microbes were super important to your health. And researchers were saying it then, it just hadn't cottoned on, whereas now it's cottoned on. When, when we say those um, mi microbiome um, inhabitants, are we referring to bacteria or is there a host of other stuff as well? Well, the reality is there's a host of other stuff too, but we've really focused mostly on bacteria to date. Uh, so, so most of us, again, are talking about bacterial components of our ecosystem. And we know that there are, you know, I think about 10 to the 11 bacteria per, per mil of contents in our poo. But the reality is, and now that we've, we're using better tools, we can see that there's actually a, a, a fungal inhabitants, which you call the mycobiome. And there's also eukaryotes, which are like protozoa organisms that, that are, are native inhabitants too. So our definition of, of what a normal ecosystem is, is, is expanding. And, and we're realizing now that it's actually not just bacteria, but it's, it's, it's interaction with different fungi, which are native and healthful for us, as well as protozoa organisms that are native and helpful for us too. And it's the latter organisms that I think that are just coming to the fore and will be uh, a topic of much research and, and, and novel discoveries over the next five years, because we really weren't looking at the fact that there actually are indigenous native commensal um, protozoal organisms mm. as part of our ecosystem in health. You know, yes, we looked at that Giardia as being pathogenic and we should kill it, but it turns out that we actually mm -hmm. do have native inhabitants there that are playing healthful roles for us too, but we're just starting to tease that out. When we start seeing new actors in the picture, it really increases the complexity of the picture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I'm just wondering with regards to the science, where are we at? Is this still in, in infancy or is it quite advanced? At this and I think this, is, this really depends on who you ask. If you ask someone like me who's been in this field for 18 years, I don't think we're in infancy anymore when we're looking at bacterial members of the ecosystem. Um, we've learned a lot. Is there more to go? Yes. <laughs> Whenever I look at a, a molecular analysis of someone's stool, that there might be 90 species on that list of what's in their gut. And we might know a lot about, or some about, well, let's go. We might know a lot about 10 of those species, some about another 10 of those species, and almost nothing on another wow. 70 species found in that gut. So, so in that respect, I can see, yeah, we've got a lot to learn. But then I compare that to, to the microbiome research where you know, this has only come out the last five years. And we're still trying to find what, name these species and find out what role they might be playing. That's in its infancy. Looking at protozoal organisms, I'd say that's in its infancy. Yeah, but if you just spoke to someone who just discovered that the microbiota exists two years ago, they'll say it's in its infancy. You know, I only, only learned about it from watching a Catalyst special. Yes. You know, yeah. So for them, it's new, um, but it's actually been ongoing for ages. I mean, there's been people researching it since the 1960s. It's, it's just mm -hmm. that it's, um, as I said, because of the evolution of tools, 
we can see more of what's going on, and that's led to the the boom in research mm. that happened from the early two thousands onwards. So I guess for, uh, for me, I'm looking at um, these various species that are in the gut and our understanding of them and their interrelations and uh, also mm. how they relate to various bodies. So a human being with a certain health um, or, you know, whatever char- characteristics they have, we probably don't understand the individual responses they have in an individual. So um, just um, can you maybe clarify to us um, the interaction between the bacteria or the microbiome and the human being and what kind of relationship there is and what does it do for us? Yeah, I mean, I, I like there's a researcher in, in Sweden back in the early 2000s called um, Professor Stig Bangmark, and he, he likened the microbes at that point to the microbiota organ or microflora organ, as he probably called it then. Mm. Um, and I very much like that idea and it's totally stuck uh, with me since then. And because when you sort of delineate all the important functions that this organ has for us you start seeing it as yeah it's, it's equally as important yeah. as our stomach or, yeah. or um liver or other functions it plays vital roles yes we could live without those microbes you know you could you could absolutely sterilize your gut and, and you'd still live but you wouldn't live healthily i think that's mm. the key thing that we know that the microbiota is important for our normal immune system function and that's both two arms of that immune response in terms of protecting us against infectious agents but also um helping us develop oral tolerance to foods for example you know and i think the the current scenario where we have high rates of food allergies is totally related to disrupted microbiome because we used to have tolerance to peanuts and kiwi fruit and fish and a range of other nuts that we don't seem to have now and that's yeah. very much to do with how bacteria interact with our immune system and there was you know funky research done in the 1960s and 70s where they were able to completely eradicate the the gut ecosystem of mice and rats and put them in little sterile cages and give them sterile food so they couldn't regrow bugs and they found that their ability of their white blood cells to to sort of eat invading pathogens decreased by 90 percent you know their their spleen shrank their thymus gland shrank which are key immune organs and even the number of of uh, antibody generating cells in the gut decreased by about 90 percent as well so massive shift Mm. all they had to do to correct it was introduce some poo from normal rats and boom their their thymus grew their spleen grew again and their white blood cells started functioning properly Mm. so we can see this very clear relationship Mm. even from an early 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 days of, of research in the microbiome and motility also for your in terms of gut motility we know is very much dependent on microbes if we again using those same mouse or animal models where they eradicate out those um gut bacteria everything slows right down dramatically uh, other things we know is that the it, microbiome improves under nutritional status so certainly by making b vitamins and we know now that it makes b vitamins Vitamins B1, B2, B3, B5, B6, folate, and even vitamin B12. It's just that we don't have transporters for vitamin B12 in our colon. Um, but we do, however, have transporters for the other B vitamins. So the microbes that are making the B vitamins, we actually benefit from that. And the B vitamins are often in active forms and, and very well absorbed in that environment. Um, vitamin K, also made by, by gut bacteria and even helps with absorption of things like calcium and magnesium because a fair bit of those minerals get absorbed in our colon too when we've got a, a, the right sort of micro environment that's there. The old view of bacteria is good bacteria, bad bacteria, which is very typical of uh, yeah. humanity where we try to put uh, things in certain boxes. One is good, one is bad. But as the science has emerged now, we're seeing that that is not the case. Can you give us an idea now of what the new view is? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's more about maybe therapeutic windows or having the right amount. It's about balance might be taking a step back of, of having too much of certain microbes will cause problems and too little can be problematic as well. And having, having microbes in the right zone, I think is perhaps arguably ideal. And, and I think that's certainly the way that I look at it. And that's what I think the research is dictating. We have some that have a narrow window in which they, that they're healthful and a greater window in which they're harmful, in which case scientists would refer to them as pathobionts. Mm. So species that in the right balance are helpful, but in, in over overgrowth stage can cause harm. And there are other microbes that we put lactobacilli and bifidobacteria in that category that it's really exceptional circumstances where we'd see them as causing harm. They have, a, <clears throat> from, a, from a drug analogy, they have a wide, very big window that you've got a, a wide range of populations that, that are going to be helpful. It's only when you get above a certain point, which is really, really hard to do bar unusual circumstances will they actually cause mm. harm. So these are the, the ones that we see in ferments. And, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, that's why we certainly see lactobacilli yeah. as being yeah. key, key drivers of most of our traditional fermented foods. Uh, I'll, I'll zoom out a little bit because um, I'm looking now as, uh, you know, people are getting more and more health conscious. There are so many diets out there that are um, promising health. So people are going on diets for a long time. They're not, it's not no longer interventional diets. They're just trying to find the diet that suits them. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, um, let's take a, a healthy individual, which is very rare to find these days. A healthy individual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't treat many of them. It's true. <laughs> so, yeah. My clinical practice is not full of healthy individuals. It's full no, of uh, well individuals. Yeah. Um, is there a universally accepted healthy diet that is actually gut-friendly and healthy for the microbiome? Uh, I mean, I think there's obviously going to be individual nuances to suit suit the person yeah but i think broadly speaking it is high plant food and high fiber and high diversity i think those things come through in in, in looking at microbiota specifically but but probably more broadly in literature as well okay so yeah. um the fiber and the plant food are um the major element in your view that will be beneficial to the gut yeah, we know from a gut bacterial perspective that the uh, higher fiber, higher diversity of diet results in a higher, a more diverse colonic ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the markers that I think almost everybody, not almost every scientist in, in the gut microbiota world agrees on that a more diverse colonic ecosystem is equated to health in numerous different research studies. And essentially the best way of doing that, of achieving that is one, avoiding factors that, that cause harm to your, your gut. But, but to eating, eating a diet that feeds up a wide number of microbes. And remember, what reaches the colon is essentially uh, food comp- components that we don't, the, the human cells don't extract and absorb. So that means we've got polyphenols and it means we've got fibers for the most part. You know, because what we kind of fibers? A whole mixture of, of insoluble, insoluble fibers and pectins and gums and mucilages. Okay. And this is why a, a diverse variety of, of plant foods provides a diverse ver- type and shape of fiber, because that's the key thing. There are some species in your gut that are pretty selective, and they'll only eat like one or two different shapes of fiber. And there are others that will eat a wide diversity of different fibers and resistant starches, etc. So if we have a wide diversity of, of plant foods, it means we're having a wide diversity of, of dietary fibers you're consuming and those fibers all reach the colon to feed microbes because mm-hmm. we as humans don't have the right machinery to break down fibers whereas eat a eat a steak or lamb or something like that then then we're absorbing pretty much almost all of that yeah a small amount of the of the amino acids or proteins escape digestion everybody to reach the colon but very little whereas if we're eating you know big leafy green salad or uh 
a bowl of black and red rice and with those salad greens in it that there's a whole matter of fibers and polyphenols, which are the, the color compounds in the red rice or black rice, for example, that, that reach the colon to feed, to feed microbes. Right. That, that's super interesting. Mm-hmm. So uh, apart from the hormetic effect on the body in terms of stressing the body, they, they also provide various substrates to the bacteria and the gut so that they can thrive as well. Yeah, because you have to remember that the, yeah. the colon bacteria are, are mostly some that can eat a bit of your mucus in your gut when we are all secreting mucin, but otherwise they're dependent upon the foods that we eat to feed them. So, so diet has got the huge capacity to to alter one's ecosystem far far more so than any any sort of intervention like a probiotic or, or even infrared foods will have minimal impact compared to changing one's diet in terms of reducing um, food substrates in terms of fibers and polyphenols or increasing one's intake of fibers and polyphenols you'll you'll see dramatic shifts in a really short period of time. The fiber issue is uh, sorry, Joe. I keep asking questions because I'm like no, you're I'm, right. You're right. You're on a roll. <laughs> Um, you know, we're coming out of uh, the the grain-based era, I guess, where the food pyramid was telling people to eat nine series of whole grains, which actually ended up being pastas and breads and, you know, genetically modified mm-hmm. grains and all sorts of stuff that came with that, with the preservatives and the additives. And then um, we've had a shift in the in the culture now where people are either going down the paleo route where they're eliminating all the grains um, and then seeing a lot of health benefits as well because they're starting to focus more on plant-based foods and uh, fresh meats and getting the preservatives out of the diet. And then people think, hey, I found the holy grail of food. And then on the other hand, there's um, like the vegetarian and vegan movement as well, which is focusing on eating more um, fresh leafy greens and brassicas and things like that. And um, there's the low-carb, high-fat approach, which is the keto is getting really, really big. It's one of the biggest diet trends Mm. at the moment. Yeah. And uh, we we also have, like Joe and I have personally healed from doing an intervention diet called the GAPS diet, which I'm sure you're aware of. Yeah. Um, and uh, for that one, initially, it is very, very low fiber. And uh, the fiber increases as the gut heals in terms of um, the view of that diet that people who are unwell in their gut, they should avoid fiber to begin with and then introduce it slowly as their gut heals. And it's kind of confusing for you know people because yeah. a, a lot of people mm-hmm. don't know where they are in terms of their health and where, what kind of foods they can tolerate and where to begin with this. I'm interested in two things. One is your approach in terms of determining where a human being should be starting with their diet, whether they should be eliminating fibers for a short period of time and then reintroducing them. That's one thing. And then the other thing is I'd really love to hear about the long-term microbial effects from diets like paleo, vegan, high-fat, low-carb. Okay. I mean, for the latter, latter question, I think we'll, we'll have to wait for, for more research to, to tease some of that out. I can certainly share some, some experiences as a clinician because I do see yes. patients and I have seen patients for 18 years. So I'm, I'm one of those people that straddles a couple of different worlds of academia, research, and um, being a clinician. So I still see patients um, and, and I do a lot of microbiota analysis for my patients too, you know, but I suppose... One aspect of that is I do see sick, sick patients, yes. I don't see healthy people. So, so for me, when I'm doing analysis and, and look, looking at the microbiome and I'm looking at the, at the dietary fact and the research around that, you can, you can start making these links because I, I do think that there are, um, I certainly see them in practice and the research is there that, that dietary patterns that restrict plant foods and fiber sources do negatively impact the 
ecosystem. And there's the short-term impact of that, but it's for me, it's more worrying. It's, it's a long-term aspect of that. And this is something I see frequently in practice now of people. And, and this, I think, is compounded when they're taking you know herbal antibiotics for long periods of time or antibiotics for, for long periods of time on top of very restricted diets and where you start seeing really huge, I'd say negative shifts in the ecosystem because you're losing diversity, you're losing um, levels of, of species that we would we generally microbiota research would see as key marker species of good health, which we think is like Fecalobacterium, Acromanzium, Bifidobacteria, um, and, and other butyrate producers often go go down um, as a consequence of such diets. And, and for me, I'm often seeing people that that used to be able to tolerate a wide range of food, um, a whole range of foods, but they had some bloating or distension and they were diagnosed with SIBO. So then they were put on or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth for those that aren't familiar with SIBO, but I imagine most of the listeners are. Um, and they're put on a very restricted diet, some course of antibiotics, some course of herbal antimicrobials, you know, 12 months down the road is that now they can eat only five foods mm-hmm. and they can't tolerate <laughs> much at all in terms of fiber because essentially, um, and you look at their gut ecosystem, you're like, oh, gosh, okay, now you starved off your butyrate producers, you starved off your bifidobacteria and your um, acomanzium fecalobacterium, which are key players for keeping your, your, your gut um, not inflamed <laughs> and for helping promote healing and for decreasing even systemic inflammation, um, let alone the you know, gut inflammation. So, and, and they're also, as a consequence, feeding often um, groups of bacteria in your gut called proteobacteria, and more specifically ones that are called hydrogen sulfide gas producers, which actually actively cause leaky gut and damage. But, um, but you don't get bloating or distension <laughs> by, by eating those foods, so that sort of dietary purpose. So you don't get any obvious signs in the short term that the ecosystem is actually going wrong. Um, but you notice it after six or nine or 12 or year and a half or two years following and like, hey, the, yeah, the ecosystem is actually gone backwards in, in, in many ways and maybe the bloating distension you're not getting that well you're eating that sort of dietary approach but now you try to introduce these foods back in um you're, you're far worse off than what you were before and this is a pattern that i see, see commonly in practice what about when people are taking foods out because they're not coping with them and working on healing the gut with something like gaps and then bringing foods back in yeah um, i, I th- Okay, sorry. Because yeah. no, that's okay. I was just going to say because that was that was very successful for us, and uh, my son had his um, gut bacteria tested after two years on gaps, and um, with Dr. Igor Eagle, sorry, Trevisian, um, and he was saying that he was a he said this is a gap success story <laughs> because he really had a um, healthy gut afterwards. But I think we did do what you're saying is um, make sure there was a really wide variety of vegetables. Would that be something that really helped? I, I think that the continued fiber ingestion is, is a core aspect of that. I mean, there's a few things that twist in there. One is, is the stool test that they did mm-hmm. at the end of the to assess what the ecosystem looked like. If we're using old technology like culturing, we're, we're pretty limited on what we can see. Yes, so we're okay. looking at 12 different species. Uh, <laughs> that we've known about for 150 years okay. that actually play pretty small roles. We don't see the yeah. changes. And this is, this is one of my concerns is if we're still using that old technology, you don't see the increase in proteobacteria. You don't see the increase in hydrogen sulfide producers mm. and you don't see the decrease in butyrate producers or acromanzia because the test is, it can't see them. <laughs> so what kind of tests do you usually do? You need to do molecular assessment of the microbiota. And this is why the microbiome is what it is, is because we changed technology to using DNA to see mm-hmm. what's there. Yeah. And research has shown since the early 2000s that for some people, 90% of their gut bacteria, we can't grow in petri dishes and see that they even exist using the old 
old approaches. Mm-hmm. So you really can't see very much of what's going on. You um, did have the DNA test as well. Okay, cool. Because yeah. my, my concern is I see people who, who do a, a, a traditional stool cut thing that looks at, at four species of bacteria yeah. looks at 12 and go, hey, look, it's all good. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I yeah, can yeah. see those changes. And, yeah, and some right. of them you can artificially raise. Like if you're, you can, if you're low in bifidobacteria or lactobacilli, then you give them heaps of fermented foods and the probiotic supplement will yeah, they're going to go up while you're taking mm-hmm. the supplements. Um, it's just whether you're, you've actually healed your indigenous or nurtured your indigenous populations up to the point where they're promoting your health is another, mm-hmm. another question. Um, yeah. And, and that's something I suppose I've seen um, a few. And, and again, I, I see, you know, I see mostly people that are, that are, that are, go on, are unwell, but I see, I also run workshops for the general public where we look at the called meat and microbiome sessions. So I do have a number of healthy people who go in there and, and there has been a pattern that I've seen in, in um, gaps and, you know, mm-hmm. granted this is not a, you know, full on research study. So it's just, mm-hmm. just a pattern yeah. that I've observed as, as a clinician and teacher, um, which, is, which has been interesting because their, their diversity score has actually been very good. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and that's one, one factor that's with, associated with good health is diversity score. But what has showed up was, was high proteobacteria, which mm-hmm. are a class of bacteria that um, essentially contain endotoxin um, just as part of their, their structure. You know, it's not, it's not like they're releasing toxins. It's just part of their, who they are. They just contain endotoxin. And that endotoxin is really pro-inflammatory from, from, mm. from proteobacteria, really pro-inflammatory. It causes gut damage and causes issues with blood sugar regulation over time, even damages the blood-brain barrier, and, and even research showing it's a trigger for depression and anxiety as well. Mm. There's a whole bunch of research studies showing up looking at, at endotoxin and the Well, this is the interesting thing because it, it, they, some of them actually eat bile that, that we produce when we have more fat. So they actually th- often thrive on a, on a high-fat low fiber sort of diet and high fat, high protein diet because some of them eat amino acids and protein. So, but they don't eat fibers. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there's this thing of, of and, and this thing you wouldn't notice if you're only looking at, at that old culturing approach of assessing the mm-hmm. ecosystem, you'd have no idea that your dietary approach is actually feeding those species. We don't see that they're there. And you also wouldn't see that the, the butyrate producing micro population decreases because you're not feeding them either. If you're eating mm-hmm. just, just mostly well, you know, this is an extreme example, but mostly fat and mostly meat, you're not going to feed those butyrate. What, what is butyrate, if you can explain and tell us what, how, why it's beneficial? Okay. Yeah. So, so the micro, microbiome, I talked about some of its health benefits. A lot of its health benefits come from sort of metabolites that it produces. And I talked a little bit about B vitamins and vitamin K, but one of the main things they produce are things called short-chain fatty acids. And there's three main ones that are produced. There's acetate, or we know is vinegar, you know, they, they produce, mm-hmm. and that's, that's pretty similar to what's happening in traditional um, ferments as well. We get that vinegar being produced, um, but they also produce propionate and butyrate. And most microbes in your gut produce acetate, so that's not so hard to come by, although we obviously produce more of it when, we, when we're eating more, more sort of dietary fibers because that's the main driver in terms of fibers and resistant starches and oligosaccharides and polyphenols are the main sort of drivers of, of short-chain fatty acid production in the gut. So... But what's somewhat unique is that only a handful or a couple handfuls of species in your gut can produce butyrate. And they only produce that butyrate is when you feed them. And you don't feed them, you don't get the butyrate. And butyrate has a number of important roles. Perhaps the most well-known is the fact that it's the main food source for your colon cells. So I think 
up to, to 70% of your colon cells energy needs are met through, through beta production in the colon. So we've evolved in this relationship where our, our cells are actually totally dependent on this bacterial byproduct to, to grow and thrive and be pro- function properly. And if we deprive them of that, then there are negative consequences. So, and, and when we have more butyrate, we make sure the colon cells are functioning properly and heal properly, but it also has a healing effect on the small intestine as well. And there's good research on this. But importantly, when we reproduce more butyrate than what our colon cells can use and eat as a food source, it reaches our circulation. And this is where we, we, it gets really funky because this is where we start getting the body-wide benefits of butyrate. And butyrate you know, is now being touted as something to help heal the blood-brain barrier um, mm. because it, and even getting decreased inflammation in the brain and having a role with Alzheimer's and, and um Anxiety and depression, for example, improves insulin sensitivity, helps your insulin actually work work better, uh, and decreases inflammation in your fat cells and muscle cells and in your liver as well. So it has a whole body-wide anti-inflammatory effect, um, to just name a few benefits of butyrate. But there are, and even it's one of the main tools for improving mitochondrial function as well, and for helping regulate appetite. There's there's whole conferences that could be, be. you spend days learning about the wonders of butyrate. It's a pretty mm. amazing substance. Um, and essentially, we've evolved with these little butyrate-producing factories in our gut. And I am cautious about dietary approaches that do not feed those butyrate-producing bacteria because we've got research showing that there um, are negative consequences gut-wise from such approaches in terms of the increased risk of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, for example. But it's more of the systemic things that we're starting to see now of Alzheimer's disease and, and depression, anxiety, those things that we're linking in with, with you know, the, the, the lack of certain bacterial products in the gut, like butyrate, as well as an overabundance of some, like, endotoxin. So butyrate comes from the fermentation of fibers by the yes. bacteria. Is there any other source? Like, I remember reading that it is actually contained in dairy products like butter or something like that. Yeah, there is a trace. There is some in butter. Like, I think you'd have to eat probably like a, a giant block of it to, to produce it. Get what you would your, your gut bacteria would produce for you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm always hesitant to have people go, hey, you can get two butter. Well, yeah. <laughs> but but there's, there's two problems with that. One is the quantity you'd, you'd have to consume to equal what your colon bacteria produce. But two is the fact that if you, you orally ingest it, then you're, you absorb the butyrate. And, and, um. and you get some of the, the body-wide benefits, sure, but you don't get the colon sort of benefits in that case. So, so know, again, it's up the fibers, more veggies, more... Right. Yeah, and, it, and it's mm-hmm. certain types of fibers that feed the butyrate-producing okay. microbes. And this is the thing. It's resistant starches yeah. are, are very important, and, and oligosaccharides also play a role. Oligosaccharides we find in um, grain, or leg- legumes often mm-hmm. contain oligosaccharides. Um, some grains do as well. And then some vegetables like you know, Jerusalem artichoke and asparagus and uh, burdock root and dandelion root and chicory root, some roots that, that traditionally were always part of our diet mm. but are, are seldom consumed now. And even through some artichokes, we seldom consume because they're yeah, you don't see them very often. They, they make us fart. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that in our current society is like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to no, eat no. that. Um, yeah. But traditionally, we wouldn't have really cared much about, no. about farting. Um, and have to start digging up the dandelions. Yeah, yeah, because they've yeah. always been a part of our, <laughs> our diet and they're pretty... You know, My mum always ate them when we were okay. before we were born. She used to that was their greens. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's even some of those same oligosaccharide compounds in the greens of dandelion. Yeah. But there's a higher amount. The and there's also in onions and garlic as well. So oh, essentially, you, you probably see a pattern if you're familiar with the low FODMAP diet. Yes. That's, that dietary approach is designed to cut out <laughs> all yeah. that whole category of, of, of foods. And, and as a consequence, we see decreases in uh, microbes that eat those compounds like fecalibacterium, which is for mm. most of us our main butyrate producing microbe in our gut, goes down on a low FODMAP diet. We also mm. lose, lower our bifidobacteria counts. And another species called Acromansia, that is one of the key players for metabolic health and integrity of your, your gut cells. Too. Well, here's the problem. If people are so sick and reacting to these foods, what do you do? Because you've got to take them out for a while. Yeah, and and I work with people with with IBS for a long long time, and mm-hmm. and, and with SIBO would probably make up the, the bulk of my practice these days. So oh, I okay. certainly have lots of people that that I do use a low FODMAP diet with initially, whilst I I heal the underlying issue, and that's I think the key thing is that a low FODMAP diet for three months is not a concern. Yeah, exactly. But two three four years, yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a concern. So okay. and and also on top of that, I'll supplement with with. Um, prebiotic fibers that actually feed those same bugs that are being starved off in that mm-hmm. diet to make sure that they're still being fed and nourished. And that can it often works very well. And sometimes you might have to tweak to get the right fiber at the right dose, depending on the person. But I think it's important mm-hmm. that they we maintain those healthful bug populations um, on, on different sort of dietary, dietary approaches because I think it's mm-hmm. often a neglected um, it's often neglected currently by practitioners and people who are self self imposing certain dietary patterns and not knowing that that there's an impact on their gut. And if they mm-hmm. follow dietary patterns for long enough, there seems to be I'd actually argue extinction events that occur. You starve something up for long enough, it will die out mm-hmm. as well. I want to remove the confusion for our listeners because a lot of them are on the GAPS diet and um, just want to get some really good, clear thinking for them here so that they don't go here feeling super confused because they're on this mm. diet that, that they're trying to heal their gut. And the idea, as you know, with GAPS is initially to reduce the fibrous foods because if the gut is so far gone that it can't really handle the fibers initially. So what we trying to do with gaps to up the nourishment and make the digestion as easy as possible. Um, yeah. Are, you know, um, my always concern is just the role, because again, this from an evolutionary perspective, we've evolved with gut bacteria playing specific roles that are important for gut yeah. integrity, you know, and that would be things like the butyrate producers and yeah. um, bifidobacteria, acromansia that, that do, we know from research play key roles in keeping our, are healing our gut when it's damaged and promoting good gut integrity. And if we're starving off those species, and, and I'd say that there's, I'm sure there's ways of doing such a diet, so it doesn't do that. But it's always my, my concern is if we're, we're neglecting to feed those up, then it actually makes healing the gut um, more challenging because you're sort of trying to do it with one hand tied behind your back rather than his other ways of doing it that actually speed up the process so we can actually nourish the species that we do want there. Um, and, and I think sometimes the, the, the challenge can be is, is teasing out something that's causing gut damage versus something that causes gut symptoms. And I think this is, can be very challenging for, for the general public because you, they can, your, your gut is inflamed. You ate a bowl of legumes. I can tell you now that, that you're going to get not only just farting, but you'll get distension <laughs> and possibly pain and bloating with that. And that's not because the legumes are harm, harming your gut or causing damage. It's because the oligosaccharide component of the legumes, which is not digested by anybody, is feeding microbes that are increasing gas. And when your gut is inflamed, you do not tolerate that amount of gas being produced. Mm. Um, whereas if you decrease the gut inflammation, 
then you will be able to tolerate that amount of gas with just farting more and not getting bloating, pain, or distension. You know, so I think there's that aspect. So sometimes we we cut out things thinking that they're causing harm yeah, the problem, versus they're causing they're symptoms, um, which is a completely different thing. Unlike unlike gluten, for example, where gluten for someone who's celiac or arguably in people with with gluten sensitivity, not only causes symptoms but causes physical harm and damage. So you 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 well you might get similar symptoms from eating a bowl of, of lentils as you do <laughs> some sour some bread. You're actually you know going backwards mm. when you eat that bread, whereas legumes will cause symptoms but not actually damage your gut or inflame your gut in any in, in any significant way. Gaps does contain fiber foods, but sort of later on in the you know the more advanced stages, and the idea is to progress towards those stages and um, you know get the fiber back into your body. Mm. And in in the same way, like we look at, as you mentioned, just the low FODMAP diet. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. The, you know, a three month intervention with uh, low FODMAP and and then maybe supporting the microbiome with uh, fiber that the gut can tolerate and feeds the bacteria is a good approach. Would that sound like a reasonable approach for you? Yeah, because it might be just some tweaks, like like, as I said, for my my patients that I'm working with that do have inflamed guts and and don't tolerate gas-forming things very well for the most part, that you can use a fiber like partially hydrolyzed guar gum, which is Mm. uh, essentially broken down in a certain way and only feeds certain bacteria in the gut and for most people actually decreases gas production and is well tolerated but it feeds those butyrate producing microbes and feeds bifidobacteria so you've got a, a supplemental dietary source that tends to that also will promote healing and speed up the healing process that's well tolerated and will feed those microbes that could otherwise be be starved mm. out and so it, it's selective as well at the bacteria that it's exactly yeah because that's the thing is for me it's 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 about we can choose tools that are selectively fermented in the gut, and that's what we term prebiotics. And I think the term prebiotic is overused and misused in the blogosphere and by, by many clinicians. Too. Same thing. <laughs> it's, yeah, well, it's something that feeds bacteria. And it's like, no, <laughs> that's not what a prebiotic is. <laughs> a prebiotic is, is a selectively fermented substrate that by its, it, by its fermentation promotes your health. That, that's how it's defined. And okay. it's the selectivity is the key aspect there. So with something like partially hydrolyzed guar gum, what we feed is butyrate-producing microbes mm-hmm. and bifidobacteria. Boom, that's it. That's all it eats. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, you so know, that would be a, a supplement form. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. Because mm-hmm. it's different from normal guar gum. That's, that's what I wonder. As, as binders. The fill and, out of a binder. Yeah, that's right. Because that actually yeah. feeds different bacteria. The partially hydrolyzed, it's, it's broken up. Hydrolysis means chopped up. It's okay. chopped up into small bits and it, it works selectively and it's well tolerated and it, and it doesn't sticky and bind stuff up. You can mix it with a butter beautifully and, and swish it down where you couldn't do that with normal guar gum. Right, yes. yeah. So it's, it's, it's quite different. It's actually a supplemental dietary fiber, yeah. um, not, not something you would typically add to your diet. This is not something you would sort of recommend anyone adds to their diet, would you? Because I know a lot of people might be just going there online looking for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, I think partially hydrolyzed guar gum is a, is a great, cool. generally extremely well-tolerated supplement. You know, we've right. got very good research on it for irritable bowel syndrome and for uh, mm-hmm. constipated type patients. But in, importantly, it also works for people who've got the diarrhea, functional diarrhea or diarrhea type IBS side of things. Mm-hmm. And, and part of how it's working is by changing that ecosystem in a, in a beneficial way. How much and would you take for Generally, it'd be five grams a day is, is a therapeutic dose, occasionally more than that, but that would be a standard therapeutic dose. And f- for some people, and again, I'm working with a pretty sensitive dynamic or group mm-hmm. of people uh, that, that I might start off with, you know, half a teaspoon and slowly work up to, to 
five, five grams, which is essentially one metric tablespoon. Right. Of, but it has to be the partially hydrolyzed. The normal gorgum ferments very same, differently yeah. and reacts differently in your gut okay. and will often not be tolerated. Mm. Whereas the partially hydrolyzed feeds different bacteria and, and nine out of 10 people doesn't increase gas, but actually decrease intestinal gas. So you're working with people who really, if you're working with people with IBS, um, I guess at first they can't handle much in the way of fibre. Some people, yes, and, and and for me, I'm working most, yes, yeah, so mostly IBS, SIBO patients, and people with also colitis and Crohn's would make up yeah. the bulk, and some helicobacter pylori tossed in for good measure. But those those ones would make up the bulk. But so I'm working with people with pretty inflamed guts on a on every sort of day basis. So, so what's the first steps for these people that are so far like you know having so much trouble with their bowel? Yeah, the, the the trickiest ones are the ones that have, have already gone through two years of, of very restricted diets and herbal antimicrobials and antibiotics to okay. try to treat their condition because their their ecosystem and their guts is extremely inflamed and sensitive so much so that I've got some patients that um, can feel every single gas bubble that floats oh, through their colon. <laughs> Others that have to have a, a nightly enema to eliminate the feces from their rectum because they can't mm-hmm. sleep because of the pain associated with having you know poo yeah. in their gut overnight so the um, extreme end of things and, and those people are the hard, harder ones to, to, to treat because to, to, to heal that gut you need to nurture those bacterial species that are there and, and I look at their ecosystems and it's like whoa gosh that approach you've been taking is, has certainly fed up your proteobacteria and your hydrogen sulfide gas producers which explains your, your, your extreme gut inflammation sensitivity um, but to fix that <laughs> We need to have more polyphenols and more fiber, and and it's it's really for very sensitive people. It's it's a it's a, a painstaking, slow process of doing one thing at a time and mm-hmm. slowly increasing dosages. So we might start with something like partially hydrolyzed guar gum and start with polyphenol-rich foods, um, and then slowly expand from there. As well as, as doing other things to really focus on on healing up that gut damage. But the challenge is is until you change that ecosystem, you've got contributors to that gut damage right there. Yes, yeah, so right. it's not the food that's causing, well, not directly the food causing damage. It's the microbes that are present, the proteobacteria mm-hmm. and the um, hydrogen sulfide gas producers that are causing the problem. And they're being fed by their current diet. So it's this catch-22 that if we change the diet a lot, we would those populations would, would decrease dramatically, but they're so inflamed they can't handle much in the way of gas. So it's just, it can be a slow process in those people. And we try to work on decreasing that inflammation at the same time, decreasing those, those bacterial populations yeah. and encouraging the ones we do want that promote gut healing and tolerance to foods. In terms of the ratio between, say, leafy green, non-starchy vegetables and legumes, what does that look like for a normal person on their plate? Yeah. Ah, it's a good it's a good question. And for me, I, I still eat grains. I you know, I eat gluten containing grains, but I, I I still think rices and black rice and red rice and uh, coloured quinoas can play a and buckwheat can play a, and millet can play a role and then people's, you know, health health, um, as well mm-hmm. as legumes. And, and for me, it's it's trying to have a mixture of all those different things. And the cool thing is you, you can actually do stool analyses um, and it's becoming cheaper and more readily available to see how, how your current dietary approach is impacting your gut microbiome. I think that's the cool thing too. So we don't have to rely on... on because everyone is everyone is unique. We know that everyone's gut bacteria ecosystem mm. is unique. You're, you're more similar to your siblings and your mum, but otherwise, you can be very different from anyone else in the entire world. So, how it reacts to food will be a little bit different than anybody else's as well. Yeah. So, there, 
So this will be the, the, the cool thing is you can actually do the testing and see how your current dietary approach is impacting your ecosystem and from there um, make changes. And this is what I'm often doing with patients is we do that. The test and go, okay, don't change your diet to get the test results in. And then we go, ah, okay, now I can now see that your current approach is negatively impacting you because you're feeding these species and you're not feeding enough these species. So we get an idea of how we can actually change things. Um, and then most people respond in a pretty typical way to those sort of changes. You do get the odd outlier. You know, as we all know, reacts idiosyncratically to, to, to different substances, but most people fit the, the, the pattern of increasing fiber, increasing polyphenols, increasing prebiotics with certain bacteria populations increasing and certain populations going down. I was asking the previous question sort of from a selfish basis because I, <laughs> um, I was 128 kilos at my heaviest and I've lost 30 kilos since 2011. And um, that was, I had to go on like a low carb uh, paleo style diet early on, but then I opened it up more, uh, you know, eating um, soaked grains and white rice and things like that. And um, I tolerate them fine, but I find that I'm really healthiest when I am just eating lots of um, non-starchy vegetables with plenty of fat like olive oil or tahini and um, mm. um, uh, and meat and eggs. Um, and uh, at the same time, I kind of have this concern that, hey, am I should I be worrying about eating the legumes? But when I do eat the legumes, I kind of do feel less sharp in my head, uh, you know, less clarity, less ability to articulate myself. I feel more, more bloated and I have more water retention in my body. And maybe that's from the, um, you know, remnants of uh, insulin resistance that I had. I was pre-diabetic as well at that weight, um, you know, back in 2011. And maybe my, you know, carbohydrate tolerance isn't as high. I'm just wondering for people like me, which there's plenty of, um, what kind of approach would you take? Yeah, in- interesting. Um, I, mean, I, I just could help but think of some research that was that was done on, on legumes on, and blood sugar regulation. And they, they essentially compared two breakfasts. One was a bowl of lentils, one was a big beef steak. And they said, mm-hmm. okay, let's look at your blood sugar levels for the next 24 hours. Do you know which one had the best impact on blood sugar regulation? Over the 24-hour period? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think almost that at all time points was actually the, I'd, I'd have to double check that. It's been a couple of years since I read the study, but the legumes yeah. did. And essentially was, was because they feed the butyrate producing microbes and butyrate actually improves. Would that also depend the on whether the person was, um, you know, fat adapted or not? So if they've been eating. Well, that, that's a very good question. And, and, and that's something that would have to be teased out. And whether if you kept eating legumes consistently rather than maybe once on a blue moon, that, that your your system would actually adapt quite differently and your gut bacteria would adapt as well. So there, there's a few things that would that weren't teased out in that research. There's been a few research studies comparing legumes to, to, to just a meat meal showing improved blood sugar regulation, but that's obviously for a certain population which that's you right. may, not, may, may not fit that, that population. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I would think that if you were potentially worried, you could you could look at your microbiota picture and go, okay, well, how does it actually fit? And and yes, there are some questions about what an ideal ecosystem looks like, but and there are some traits that we see as as important, like diversity scoring and mm-hmm. levels of of you know, certain microbes that I said can can cause harm in larger amounts and certain species that we know are play important key pivotal roles in, in promoting health 
and can only do so when they're there at a certain amount. So we look, we look at that and see, okay, where does your current dietary approach fit in that, that category? Because sometimes you would worry about the longer term consequences, not the short term consequence. Mm-hmm. You might feel great now. And I'm not saying you as in you, <laughs> probably more, more broadly is sometimes we can choose a dietary approach that works really well for us right now. But if we continue with that approach long term, yeah. that's when the, the consequences occur. And, and particularly because we're looking at that and talking to me, we're looking at, at microbiota changes that can occur with certain dietary approaches. So that's um, the thing that I, yeah. I'm curious about and would like to look, look more into. And that would allow you to make some tweaks to that, potentially that dietary approach. And, and you might start off with smaller amounts of legumes when we're introducing legumes back in the diet. And you know, of a you know tablespoon five days a week or something like that, rather than one bowl once a week, mm-hmm. um, and then you, and you slowly increase the actual dose, and that helps one decrease the bloating, distension, and even gas type issue. Because for most people, would say if you consistently do it, it's a short lasting impact because the ecosystem adapts mm-hmm. to the new food source, and the the microbes that eat gas adapt. There's a whole bunch of microbes that eat hydrogen gas, so you eat more legumes once in a blue moon, you produce a lot more hydrogen gas, and that can result in some of us just more farting, but other people will get bloating, distension, and discomfort, not feel all that great because of that. Um, but if they did that consistently for a week to 10 days, the microbes that eat the gas, their population goes up and then the gas actually goes down. Changes, yeah. It's almost what it was at baseline, which is, which is interesting. And this is what happens for most people. Now, there yeah. are people who don't fit the typical pattern, um, but thankfully most, <laughs> most do. And this is where I think the people that have caused the most damage to their ecosystem are the ones that are least likely to fit the typical pattern. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've had a history of uh, antibiotics for, I don't know, more than 20 years of my life. And uh, so I don't think I fit any kind of... <laughs> <laughs> He's unique. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is Dan, who's a naturopath who has actually studied with you, done some courses with you. He got me to do the U-Biome testing, which I'm waiting on the results. So ah, cool. We'll, we'll try to get into it and understand where I am and you know, what's yeah. best to do. So yeah, it, it's a it's a great test because it's extremely affordable. The only downside is the time frame. <laughs> it takes longer than you'd <laughs> wish to get the results, but it, it means that you can see where, where it's at and you can also make changes and do follow-up testing. So I like the, the fact that it's such a relatively inexpensive test, whereas you're paying four or five, six hundred $600 for a test. Yeah, follow-up yeah. testing to see to just for your curiosity's sake to see what's changed with your diet becomes more problematic. But you're looking at can you tell us like more about it? Bucks. Yeah, like this this new method of testing. You you kind of um, mentioned it really briefly, but you said now they're they're doing different types of testing. Can you just give us an idea of what the new kind of testing looks like and what kind of in, improved accuracy it has, and yeah. how people do it? Yeah, I can certainly do that. So the, the old old style we called culturing, which essentially they'd get some a fecal specimen and then they would take a little scoop and they'd put it out in different sort of petri dishes with different sort of growth media uh, or food for different bacteria and then they'd sort of grow it and see what would grow. That's essentially technology we've been using since the late 1800s when we first sort of isolate bacteria from poo and there was a bit of a, a shift in the late 1960s that they worked at they could grow some microbes without oxygen because most of the bacteria in our gut die very quickly when exposed to oxygen. So we couldn't, didn't know they existed. Then from 1970 onwards, we realized there's a whole bunch of new species in there that we didn't know existed. But there's a huge leap in the, the, the 2000s because essentially we changed the DNA. So now they're looking for a specific um, component called 16srRNA that all bacteria have, and it's different in all different bacteria. So, so essentially, they, they, you can take a, a fecal specimen and what they do now is they, they, you put into a tube that kills everything right away. 
Yes, that way it can sit at your shelf for two weeks or three weeks and not. And then you send it away to the lab, that's fine. Whereas the old old technology, you had to hope <laughs> and pray mm. that your populations didn't change from when you voided the stool and when it reached the lab. And this is one of the, the major problems with the old technology as well. Not only can you not see most of what's there, but there were often changes, particularly if you lived in mm. Darwin or far north Queensland. Oh. You send your lab down <laughs> to Melbourne, it's going to have a lot of temperature variation and that, yeah. that meant the population shifted or, or died in transport. And I certainly saw that a lot in practice in the old days when we had to rely on those old techniques. Now, now, as I said, because they're using bits of DNA, is essentially they can they can look find that DNA bit and then they match it to the library and go, okay, this is belongs to some lactobacillus species. Boom, and they can match it to the library. They work out how much is there, and they can actually tell you, okay, well, fifty percent of your ecosystem is composed of this species or this genus, and forty percent this one, thirty percent this, and we get this very lovely picture of of the ecosystem with much much greater. Um, accuracy and we can see a whole bunch of species as i said that we didn't even know existed you know 20 years ago because of that and that's really thrown everything on its head and we can also see with greater sensitivity changes that occur you know i wrote a review review article looking at, at the impact of diet on the gut bacteria back in the early 2000s essentially reviewing the data that was done in the 60s 70s 80s and 90s using old technology and we could almost n- not see any change in gut bacterial populations even with big changes in diet and it was confusing because we yeah. know that there should be a change yeah. Yeah. our technology just couldn't see it and we're like what the hell is going on and mm. and there were, were researchers at the time that said i think we're just using insensitive tools and, yeah, and I think in the future, we're going to start seeing these shifts. And, and, mm-hmm. and for me, it was just lovely to be around in that time to see that shift going. That you know, We used to think that antibiotics impacted your ecosystem for two weeks or four oh, weeks. Wow. That was it. Now we're using DNA. It's like, oh, actually, two years afterwards, your ecosystem doesn't look the same. Wow. Or you're doing antibiotic cocktails, four years afterwards, the ecosystem mm-hmm. does not look the same. And you could actually argue that every single course you take has some impact on that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And similar, we can see big impacts from diet. Even oh, there was one study where they put people on a what they called an all-animal diet, which is just dairy and meat um, mm-hmm. for a week, and they could see giant changes in that ecosystem within just two days. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of populations of some bacteria going up, the ones that eat bile and protein, not surprisingly, went up, and the ones that eat um, resistant starches and fibers went down. Yeah, so so we we now know with the right tools there are changes that we can do with our diet. This is with the old tools, we couldn't see them. And this is why I've got a major issues with relying on, on old, the old tech to, to see what's going on with the gut because mm-hmm. it's, it's not what's done in research world anymore. And God, there's even microbiology journals that refuse to publish research that's based on the old technology. Yeah, fair it's enough. Like, you know, it's 21st century. Let's <laughs> move on mm-hmm. using the tools that actually show us what's there and what impact our lifestyle and diet has on those microbes. Mm-hmm. You talked so much about feeding the bacteria with fiber, which is um, really kind of makes sense because you kind of try to look after what you've already got and feed them. And you know, if, you, if I've got kids and they're sick, I'm not going to go get new kids and look after them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try to feed those ones I've got. And yeah, um, but. Um, Probiotics is a is a big big business now, and yeah. um, I see a lot of money um, being asked for you know these little pills, and I I'm not sure whether they are beneficial or not. Um, will they be beneficial for me, but not someone else, or the other way around? And it's it's just so confusing. 
Um, what are your views on probiotics? Um, is there really solid science now where like, you can just go into the chemist and grab that bottle of whatever it is that they have in that fridge or sometimes it's shelf stable and then take it home and expect some benefit from it? Or is it more nuanced than that? It is more nuanced, but at the same time, there is great evidence for certain probiotics for, for certain disease conditions. Okay. Tremendous amounts of evidence. And again, for me, it's been fantastic seeing that grow. Um, and in the 18 years I've been in this field because I've always produced resources for, because I've always taught clinicians and, and student clinicians um, how to use probiotics for over that whole time period. And so it's been interesting for me seeing that I used to have, you know, two pages of a Word document <laughs> talking about which probiotics had good research on them at this time point. And that's grown now. So now I've got a, uh, a searchable database that's got all the evidence on, on different probiotic strains. And we've got, you know, some, some, some specific probiotic strains have got you know, dozens of systematic reviews and meta-analyses, which are like the highest level medical evidence that you can actually have on a, on a therapeutic substance showing that they work. Uh, I think the, the issue is around nuanced use. Um, it's not just a matter of one probiotic fits, fits all. Mm. It's like, you know, and the other aspect is, is the strain specificity. And this is something I've been teaching people about for, for really 18 years since I first found about it in the probiotic literature. But, it's, I think the best analogy here is looking at breeds of dog. All, all dogs are the same species, Canis familiaris. But you've got Great Danes and you've got Chihuahua. Mm-hmm. They're dogs. They can, in theory, mate. We may not want to watch it occur, but it can, in theory, <laughs> occur. And, and, and they're within the same species. And within Lactulus acidophilus or Lactulus plantarum, you get a huge variety of what we call strains, which are, which are just different with a few genes turned off or on, or sometimes a lot of genes that, that differ between strains within that same species. But that totally dictates whether they're therapeutic or not. And this is, I think, the key thing to uh, one of the key messages I'd love to get across today, but, but more, more broadly, the last 18 years, I've been trying to teach this message because it's not a matter of going, okay, take some Lactobus plantarum. It's like, okay, the research used one specific genetically unique strain called the 299V strain, which, which reacts differently. In fact, I can think of one clear example where the 299V strain of Lactobus plantarum, a number of clinical trials showing it helps people with irritable bowel syndrome. Decreases bloating scores, distension, and helps normalize their bowel pattern and improves their quality of life. That's pretty clear. But there's another strain of lactose plantarum called the MF1928 from memory that, when given to people with IBS, worsened (laughs) bloating, distension, (laughs) and people preferred being on the placebo than over on taking that particular probiotic strain. So you can get huge differences in terms of therapeutic effectiveness within species based on the differences in strains and what genes are turned off or on. And that's the nuance about using probiotics, that using the right probiotic for at the right time and condition, you can have their, their wonderful therapeutic effect, um, agents. And, and I think we have to shift how we consider probiotics to, to, to similar to how we, we, we use herbal medicine or we'd use pharmaceuticals, that you've got a yeah. disease state or condition you want to treat. You match that to the agent right. that's going to okay. fix that condition. <laughs> If you know what yeah. I mean, so it's it's the idea that you can recolonize or, or reseed with probiotics has really been tossed out over the last twenty or thirty years based on the research that we've got on on current generation probiotics that will change mm-hmm. in five or ten years, I'm sure. But the, in the, at the moment, the data we have shows that they, the you know, bifidobacteria, lactobacilli, as probiotic supplements, don't permanently stick in your gut after yeah. ingestion. If you're lucky, they'll stay there for a week or two if you've got a good strain. Um, otherwise, they'll pass straight through. But what they will have potentially is a therapeutic action to, mm-hmm. to match what you're wanting. 
Yeah, so you know, there, there are strains that decrease blood pressure. This is a clear example. So you take that probiotic strain, it'll decrease your blood pressure. It means you don't need to take medications. It means that you couldn't, in general, not change your life, <laughs> your diet, <laughs> and just take that probiotic daily as your medica- medication for your blood pressure. But when you stop, about a week later, your blood pressure is going to go back up. Mm. And that's that's one of the clearest examples I can give. Whereas yeah. what we should be doing is you know changing their lifestyle and their diet so they don't have high blood pressure, and using the probiotic as a tool in the short term to to until because it's much safer and better profile than the medication until mm. they can change their diet and lifestyle. But I, I think it's a key thing is the right probiotic has got the right action to treat the condition at hand. Um, I think I've got more issue with with just using them. Someone who's generally really healthy. I don't think you need a probiotic supplement. Yeah. I think you're better off having, you know, fermented foods or something rather than, than going with going yeah. a, a multi-strain, multi-CFU mm-hmm. probiotic supplement that may not actually do anything. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think the data is, it, it shows that that's a particularly helpful approach where mm-hmm. using it at the right time, right place, fantastic therapeutic agent. Um, but if you're just after a, a, an interaction with bacteria, uh, for for your for your gut cells or for your um your your own gut bacteria, you're better off having fermented foods. You know, so that way, you're getting the nourishment that comes with the food and the taste and the loveliness of it, as well as that that mm. bacterial interaction. You know, so I think it's a much better approach if that's all you're after. Um, with the uh, specific action bacteria, we have a lot of our listeners who have children who begin their symptoms with things like asthma and eczema. Yeah, um, are there any good probiotics that are on the market that sort of you know are very well, very much proven to act on that and to help? Yeah, there are, there are certainly some. And I think that list is, is expanding, not so much with, with asthma yet, but there are some strains that help with hay fever, for example. Okay. And there are some strains of bacteria that have been shown to prevent eczema very well. So, so if the mom takes them during... So if a mom has a high risk of, of having, because she's got asthma or hay fever or um, eczema or has other children that does, if she takes the right probiotic, um, in this case, you could use something like lactose rhamnosus GG, the GG strain of rhamnosus, during the last trimester and over the first sort of six months of breastfeeding, that the risk of eczema is reduced by 50%, mm. which is a pretty market reduction. And that, that persists long term. So that's and a very for a good. a child that already okay. has uh, eczema? Yeah, there are some strains, but there's, there's less. There's the lactose fermentum. VRI003 has got some good research for tr- the treatment of atopic eczema. And Alramnosis GG has got some, I, f- I found it clinically a bit more hit and miss. It works in some kids, not in others for, for eczema. And there's also another one that's available in Europe, but not here, called Lateral Salivarius LS01 from memory with really good research in eczema. It's just not sadly not available to, to your Australian listeners. But if you have any listeners in Italy, it's easy, easy to get there and other parts of Europe, but not here at this time point. Although you, you could buy it online for, for your, your child um, if so desired. But there's good research on those ones for the treatment of eczema. Um, personally, I found that prebiotics play a, a pretty pivotal role there too. So, so mm-hmm. feeding up, nurturing your bifidobacteria, and at the same time, decreasing microbes that in studies to date seem to be problematic in the gut with kids who end, end up developing eczema. Is that with the guar gum? Like that kind of thing? I would actually be using um, fructooligosaccharides in okay. that instance because there, there's research essentially adding fructooligosaccharides to formula decreasing the risk of eczema developed in the, in the offspring um, or that the child, sorry. And also clinically, I've found it to be, to be helpful and it's shifting that balance in the gut of increasing microbes like bifidobacteria. 
and fecalibacterium that have sort of healing gut anti-inflammatory effects, at the same time decreasing levels of bacteroides and E. coli, which have been linked with increased risk of developing. I feel like I'm talking to like an encyclopedia at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Jason, how are you doing for time? Do we have time for just a few more questions? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. All right. Um, You mentioned the fermented foods. these, of course, like pe- like sauerkraut now is a huge, huge thing. Everyone's eating sauerkraut uh, you know, from breakfast to, to dinner. Or, uh, yeah. They have a sauerkraut dip next to them in bed or something. It's that, <laughs> that big a deal. Um, I'd love to hear about your thoughts uh, on the fermented foods and also the histamine-containing ones and how does someone with uh, poor health introduce these uh, ferments and are there any dangers in doing so? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the instance of people with, with, I think, like food histamine issues, I've seen as a condition skyrocket in the last you know, um, 10 years of, of my practice life. And, and I do really think it's got to do with, with really dysfunctional gut and gut, gut ecosystem because I usually see it as a, as a consequence of, of lots of antibiotics, lots of herbal antimicrobials and restricted diets over time. It's actually made them sensitive where they used to tolerate those things fine. Um, so in which case you, you, you wouldn't necessarily include sauerkraut or kimchi or something as part of their, their, their approach until you get their gut healed up and then they will tend to tolerate those things again. Um, but that's often a slow process in those people at the far end of the, the extreme scenario. But I think for most people that there's, there's really little, little risk of harm with associated with, with things and, and, and general, general benefit from doing so, not only just from a taste and nutritional perspective, but um, I, I think that that sort of daily interaction with microbes is, is probably something that's always been part of, of humankind's exposure um, to the world that, that we're sadly missing in a modern days. So I do think that having that, that contact is going to be helpful, even if it's not working in the way that people often say. It's not like you're reseeding your, your gut bacteria with when you drink kefir or you're drinking or eating your sauerkraut. It's not like the plantarum that's in there stays in your gut for, for years afterwards. It doesn't. It's going to go within a week or two of, of ceasing ingestion in the vast majority of people. But you are getting that interaction at the time. And, and I think for some people whose ecosystems are very disrupted, having those, those bacteria who come through, um, just doing what they do, which could be just secreting some acids, <laughs> some short chain fatty acids and lactic acid can be enough to start promoting changes and shifts to that ecosystem for the better. Hmm. Um, do you have any more specific questions or should we, uh, finish up like a, a big picture question? Where, where are you at, Roger? Hello, I am here. Uh, Joe, Joe's gone gone on mute for some. Uh, she's yeah. back. All right, yeah. Um, Joe, any any more questions? Oh, so many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I probably I always want to bring it back to the practical. Um, everyday stuff for people like me who just want to know, okay, but what do I do? (laughs) Um, So can you just maybe give us an idea of, um, like I thought I did touch on it earlier before. I know it's different for everyone, but how much vegetables should we be eating a day? I've heard five servings a day um, and just getting the variety in there as much as possible, maybe a little bit of legumes if you can cope with it and a little bit of meat and animal products. Is that what you would suggest to your patients? Yeah. I mean, I, I generally suggest, and, and uh, I mean, I'm probably less specific when I think about it. When you ask me those questions, I'm like, Oh, maybe I, <laughs> <yours is specific. laughs> I generally just give an idea of what a, a dinner plate looks like. Yes. That'd be great. You know, you know have, have the, the meat as a small little section 
mm-hmm. there and the rest be plant food. And, and for yeah. me, that can be whole grains mm-hmm. and that can be legumes and leafy greens, and, but also some root vegetables too, because yes. I do think that the root vegetables are something that the humans have always generally consumed. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're getting things like resistant starches out of them yeah. that, that can be hard, hard to, you, you don't get from leafy greens. So you get other sort of fibers and mm-hmm. lots of amazing compounds, but not resistant starches and not so much the oligosaccharides. So I think that's what can be lacking if we depend solely upon leafy greens and, and issue consuming legumes or grains or root vegetables. I think that's where there's more, more problems with dietary approaches. Whereas if you're including those ones, then I think, um, and a wide, a wide variety and, and, um, on a daily basis and, and over a week. And, and I suppose one of the things I do tell my patients is to do what my colleagues have now said, the, the 40, 40 food challenge of having mm-hmm. 40 plus different plant foods in a given week, whole plant foods. Sorry, I missed that. Was it 40 different types or 40 servings? Is what, what 40 is different types. Right. Okay. So that includes things like herbal teas and that kind of stuff as well? Or? I generally suggest don't count those, but okay. by all means have them. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we're looking and then don't count like, you know, a pinch of cumin or a pinch of coriander. But yeah. if you had a tablespoon of cumin, sure, you can count the oh, tablespoon right. of cumin. That's enough to have fiber and polyphenol content that's going to contribute to There's that hardly 40 system. different types of vegetables in the supermarket, actually. Yeah. Well, this Could is... This is yeah. So this is a, the, the, my challenge is going, okay. And, and it's, it's how you count things too. And I think this is, I always tell my patients too, that if you're having a, a red delicious apple is different from a John, John of gold apple, yeah. they're two different foods. Red rice and black rice are two different foods. Mm-hmm. Red quinoa, black quinoa, two different foods. Yeah. Yeah. So you start breaking that up more and even different types of potato, you could count as different foods. Um, different types of lettuce, arguably you'd say as different foods too, because each of those different foods will have a slightly different ratio of different yeah. fibers and different polyphenols. So which means... And then you've you know, got your different fermented foods as well. Yeah, you would include them too. So mm. yes, so if you're looking at that... So it's not that hard then. <laughs> no, if you're looking at over the week, not on a daily basis, but 40 yes. plus over a week, I find most patients can, can to get up, up to that's that. A really good, that's a really good um, challenge for people to maybe stick a piece of paper on the fridge and see what yeah. they can figure out that they're having. Because I really notice with my kids when they're getting slack... Um, and they're, you know, they're busy with work and they're rushing home and they're tired and they're just sort of not eating the variety. I really notice their um, immunity and their energy levels going down. I'm always saying, you've got to eat more vegetables. <laughs> yeah. So that's a good thing. Thank you. I guess okay, when you go to the supermarket and you're buying apples, instead of buying like two kilos of the same apples, just, you know. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. And it's you're really going for different, different colors. So there's many yeah. rainbow things. So purple carrots, orange carrots, red carrots, yeah. purple potatoes, white potatoes. So you, you can just get that, that rainbow effect. And I think that's mm. helpful for a number of reasons. One, because they're antioxidant properties, but two, you know, things like polyphenols, like the in blueberries and purple potatoes, they feed your gut bacteria. And that's the yeah. reason why we get their health benefit is because they're feeding your, your gut bacteria and they change that polyphenol into one that you absorb. And that's where you get the benefit. Your physical human cells get the benefit because of that microbial conversion that's going on in the gut. Um, the big uh, picture question to finish the podcast, I mean, we can keep going for hours and probably <laughs> yeah. have you back again to talk more and more in depth about these things because it's been really fascinating so far. But one of the things that Joe and I do is we, we travel around the country and we teach people how to eat 
Whole Foods, basically. It's a very simple message for us. And, um, you know, it's kind of sad that in 2018, someone has to be doing that. But um, I'm glad you are. <laughs> we need more people teaching people to eat whole, unprocessed foods once again. Yeah. And um, one of the things that worry us is that, you know, we, you were at the Mind Forum, and the statistics that they quoted was that one in four kids is going to be autistic by 2033. And uh, we're feeling that the system is continually um, producing more and more sick people and you know you we're doing our best to help uh, and to educate and to help heal people or help people heal themselves um wh- how do you manage uh your emotional side of wor- of your work when uh you're dealing with individuals but then you look at the larger system and you're seeing that's producing uh sicker people uh, at a higher rate that you can manage and if you had a magic wand to sort of change one thing in our culture, what would it be? <laughs> Tough question. Yeah. Mm, it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think probably as my focus, I'd actually go with antibiotic overuse. Because <laughs> right. mm. I just see this every single day in practice of, yeah. of it being, yeah, they're great for saving lives and saving limbs, and we should save them for saving lives and saving limbs. Mm. Um, in which case, we'll have them for a long time to come. But their overuse and experimental use on a whole bunch of populations, including kids um, that yeah. I see causing harm on a, on a daily basis, I find very challenging. Yeah. <laughs> so that's something I wish, wish I could change here and now. Um, and because we're looking at, at, and I think part of the reason why that we're, we're seeing this, this rise in certain conditions is, is really loss of ancestral mic- your ancestral microbiome, I think is one way of looking at it. The, the missing microbes hypothesis is what, um, Martin Blazer from New, I think New York Union States called it is that you know our ancestors had a far more diverse ecosystem than us in every single one of our generations because of antibiotic usage and proton pump inhibitor use and non steroidal anti inflammatory use net let alone diet mm-hmm. <laughs> standard Australian diet is starving off um, species and every single generation gets born with less and less and less bacteria than the one before and we're just and this is where I think we're in our infancy and teasing out what the consequences of this are of being born with lacking a number of species that were present in previous generations. And I think it's those things that, that I'm, I, I worry about and that I think are feeding into the sort of Western disease epidemics that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. They're not easily the, fixed. For the future as, as things are. Sorry, I missed that question. Do you have hope for the future as things are going? I have hope that, that we're, we're improving our tools and we're improving our ability to, to measure the, the gut ecosystem and we're, we're improving our tools to fix it. So I, I think, mm-hmm. yes, and I think we'll be doing things like fecal banking in the future where we, yeah. before we give our kids a dose of antibiotics, we'll be storing a bit of their poo um, and then we'll give them antibiotics then they'll reintroduce those same microbes back in. So there's mm, no loss of, of diversity from that, you know. So I think we'll be doing that, and I think we'll have probiotics that that contain uh, 50 different strains from that are gut inhabitants that we can use to sort of recolonize. So I think um, we'll, we'll, that those things will improve, and, and we may well even be sourcing some of those supplements from indigenous cultures that haven't had the, the crap mm. diets, hor- horrible lifestyle, and all the antibiotic and medication exposure that we have. So you can look at people from the Peruvian Amazon, uh, and I think some researchers did just that. They looked at their poo. Anyway, I always find it fascinating to think of that first 
first contact was, yeah. hey, nice to meet you. We yeah. want some of your poo. Do you mind sharing us some poo? <laughs> no contact with Westerners before. Ah, what are they thinking? Um, we have really diverse, far more diverse ecosystems than us. And that's how we all would have had, you know, 100, 200 years ago. Um, and even pre-antibiotics, we would have had, you know, a huge, a hugely different ecosystem than what we've got now. So, Mm-hmm. There may well be developing probiotic products or re-inoculation products from from people that have you know undamaged ecosystems. But we'll wait, yeah. wait and see. We we'll start seeing um, people saying, "Ah, oh, mine is from the African tribe," and the other one's saying, <laughs> "Yeah, the tribe's much better." <laughs> I could imagine that yeah. happening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow, Jason. Um, yeah, fecal transplants and all these kinds of things are, you know, a topic on their own. Maybe we'll have you come back and talk about these and get also a bit more in depth. This has been fascinating. Mm. Thank you so much. You, we've taken an hour and 20 minutes of your time. So better get you, let you go back and help heal some people. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk about all things gut. And it was very good. The topics we went on today were, I loved. <laughs> all good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.